This is Under the Dome. On today's episode, we'll take a closer look at a piece of legislation that would deregulate advanced practice registered nurses. For the News and Observer, I'm Lucille Sherman, your host for this episode of Under the Dome. It's Friday, May 7th. Today we're talking about House Bill 277, known as the SAVE Act, which I quickly learned is much more controversial than one might expect it to be. This isn't a partisan issue, but rather a battle that has played out quietly behind the scenes, with physicians asking lawmakers to prevent the bill from moving forward, saying it proposes independent practice at a time when medical professionals should be collaborating. They also say the bill doesn't really address the heart of the issues supporters say it will, like healthcare costs and access. I wrote about the politics behind this bill in early April because it has not yet been heard in committee, despite having 102 sponsors in the legislature, meaning it would be extremely likely to pass the House and Senate if it ever got the chance. Physician opposition to this bill is one big reason for the holdup, and the bill, a month later after I wrote about it, has still not advanced. Today I'm talking with one major force behind the legislation, Representative Gail Adcock, a nurse practitioner, House Deputy Minority Leader, and a Democrat representing Wake County. Representative Adcock, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about a piece of legislation that you are one of the main sponsors of. I wanted to see if you could tell me about the SAVE Act and really first what it stands for. Yes, so the SAVE Act uh, stands for Safe, Affordable, Value-Laden, Effective Care. And it's all about uh, increasing access to health care across our state in a nutshell. And it does this by removing, uh, in the case of um, some groups of advanced practice registered nurses, <clears throat> it removes some uh, very old statutory requirements for physician supervision and a couple of other groups. It just modernizes, brings their rules and regulations, codifies them into statute, and it brings all of the regulation of advanced practice nursing really into the 21st century and aligns it with what um has already been done in 23 states and the District of Columbia. And why are you a sponsor of this bill? I'm a sponsor of the SAVE Act for a lot of reasons. Uh, One of the reasons, of course, is because I'm a family nurse practitioner. I've been one for 34 years. I was in family practice for 29 years of that, but I've also been a public health nurse in the past and a school nurse. I've worked in hospitals and nursing homes. I've lived in rural, more rural areas than I do now. I live in Cary, and I've seen the access to care problem up close and personal, um, both through my own practice, but also through the practice of my colleagues who are out in more remote areas than I am. So, of course, that's an excellent reason to be a sponsor. But uh, it's also good policy. Um, You know, in a state where we have uh, an access to care problem that predates the pandemic, I mean, this is not just since we've been in a pandemic, but predates the pandemic by decades, where we do not have enough providers 
particularly of primary care, in the right places so people can have care in their communities, we should do everything as we can as policymakers to make it possible for people to get health care when they need it and where they need it. And often that's in their you know, home community. Let's get into the weeds a little bit about what this bill exactly would do. So I know it applies to a variety of different providers, including nurse practitioners like yourself, certified nurse midwives, uh, nurse anesthetists. Right, anesthetists, uh-huh, and clinical nurse specialists. And clinical nurse specialists, yes. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is that it would remove, when we talk about removing this barrier, it would allow these providers to practice without supervision of a physician. Is that right? Uh, yes, that's what the bill says. Let me tell you a little bit about what supervision means, though. You know, it's, it's not the dictionary definition of supervision, one might think. The supervision we're talking about is not over the shoulder in the same room, in the same building, or in the same county supervision. It is signing a collaborative practice agreement with the physician and then having, once you're past the first six months of working together, I put that in air quotes, uh, having a, uh, a, a meeting that can be virtual, does not have to be in person, every six months, and then a review once a year of that collaborative practice agreement and signing a form that says you've done so. And that is the extent of supervision. So I think any person, thoughtful person would realize it's, it's not supervision, it's paperwork. But actually, this bill isn't even about that. This bill is about increasing access to care for folks by decreasing these administrative burdens and making it possible for these, particularly nurse practitioners and midwives, to go out into rural areas and other areas of the state where there are not enough providers, open a practice without having to find somehow a a physician who's willing to sign a form that allows them to practice when they've already had the education and the national certification that is required to practice. That would be difficult enough to do. But these nurse practitioners and midwives who want to go into these underserved areas um, and practice have to pay a physician for that paper, administrative, in-name only supervision. And that is a problem. So for you as a nurse practitioner currently in state law, for you to practice, you have to have a physician who agrees to sign off on your practice Mm -hmm. and meet with you every six months. Is that right? That's it. And beyond that, what does the meeting every six months entail? What does that look like? Is it a review? <clears throat> so what the rules say, so, you know, there's the statutory requirement for physician supervision and then the, the rules, which is an administrative code, North Carolina administrative code, the rules lay out what that supervision looks like. And it's in the rules that the collaborative practice agreement is defined. It's in the rules that it says that that every six-month meeting is about a, a relevant clinical topic. And if there's any quality improvement around uh, that issue, then, you know, what's going to be done. And then it's dated and signed by the nurse practitioner and the physician. And it's kept in the practice site for five years in case you're audited because we have just routine random audits. Um So it could be about anything. It can take five minutes. It could take 15 minutes. It can take two minutes, whatever it takes. It could be about one patient. 
like a patient perhaps that the nurse practitioner saw a week ago that was a particularly complicated patient that she'd like to speak to someone about, or at least is is some is a situation that's worth a conversation, even if she he or she did not need to consult with a physician about that patient, but could be interesting to talk about um, how things went. It could be a particular clinical problem like uh, new drugs for type 2 diabetes or new guidelines for uh, screening women for cervical cancer. <clears throat> it could be things like that. But not something often the nurse practitioners that I know, they have to think about what are we going to talk about because there's nothing top of mind that's necessary. And the reason that is, is that all these advanced practice nurses know when we know when we're at the end of, at the edge of our knowledge, we know when to consult with other providers, physicians included, but those other providers could also be physical therapists or nutritionists or other kinds of healthcare providers that, um, you know, it makes sense to talk to about the problem that our patient is having, that kind of thing. You know, no one mandate has to mandate to a professional when it's time to refer a patient or consult with a patient when it's for the, the good of that patient and it will improve their care. So one thing I find interesting is other states have sort of been passing similar legislation in recent years. And in some states, this mm -hmm. legislation is pretty old, too. I'm wondering why, I know this isn't the first time the SAVE Act has been brought up in North Carolina, and I'm wondering why it hasn't been able to pass before with other states that have passed similar legislation. What's the resistance? Well, the, the, it's the same resistance every state has faced. It's just some states have uh, faced a tougher opposition, if you will, or maybe are more more better funded or, or better resourced opposition, but the opposition has been the same in every state. And that opposition is the medical lobby. Um, so in our state, the only people, if you look at a sheet of paper and you divide it down the middle and on the left-hand side, you list all the people who support the groups that support the SAVE Act. And on the right side, you list the group that doesn't. That group is the medical lobby. Unfortunately, there is a profit motive involved in physician supervision for nurse practitioners who own their own practices and, and midwives too, of uh, having to pay a physician to, in quote, supervise you. And we've discussed what that supervision is. And so there's a profit motive there that for not all, but for many physicians that they do not want to um, see ended. I also think that that there's some concern among uh, the medical lobby about, you know, what's changing in healthcare, and and where everybody falls in the pecking order, and and how much you know what how much money one can make when more and more providers are employees of a of a large health system. They're no longer small. Very few are, are small business owners like they used to be, especially in the urban areas. And so I think there's a there's a a lot bound up in it. But when you get down to the real issues and you and you talk to folks about it it really comes down to to resisting change and the and the unfortunate profit motive and i would like to go back and say that uh, as you talk about the 23 states and of course dc that have passed uh, similar full practice authority bills new mexico passed theirs more than 25 years ago uh, some of the more recent states that have passed this legislation are California and Virginia. Uh, interestingly, no state 
that has ever passed, full practice authority has ever rescinded that legislation. They've never gone back because they see that it works. It's in the best interest of their citizens, and they're um, not unhappy with the outcome. So something I've heard from the North Carolina State Medical Society and other physicians is that they feel like collaborative practice is important and collaborative practice benefits patients. And that's one reason why I've been told they don't want to see this change. Can you speak to how this would affect collaborative practices if this bill passed? The great news is you don't need supervision to have collaborative practice. You don't need supervision in quotes of your practice to collaborate because that's what we do as professionals. That's that's the way we are educated, but it's also the way we practice and we know it's in the best interests of patients. So nothing in the SAVE Act would prevent or preclude or hinder collaboration with physicians or other healthcare providers. So, you know, we're, I'm in violent agreement with the medical society about collaborative practice, interdependent practice, being in the best interest of patients. Luckily, the SAVE Act uh, would not affect the ability to collaborate one bit. Yeah, one thing you said to me when we talked last month for the story, well, might have been two months ago now for the story I was working on, um, was that people, providers who practice inside their scope and do what they're supposed to do are collaborating with other practitioners all the time. I thought that was really enlightening to explain like all good providers do the things that they are capable of doing. Otherwise, they would be disciplined. That's right. And and that's what I call interdependent practice, which means I need you to practice, you need me, right? And so when, um, so I know when I see a patient, you know, I was in family practice for 29 years. And when I saw a patient who came in with chest discomfort and I ruled out, you know, that it was a, a upper GI problem, I ruled out it was musculoskeletal, I ruled out it was stress, and I couldn't rule out that it was cardiac, even though their EKG looked normal and their history was negative and they weren't, didn't have a lot of risk factors for cardiac disease. Of course, I was going to refer them to a cardiologist because I didn't have an answer to their problem. And this happens over, you know, this happens dozens and dozens of times a day in everyone's practice, not just nurse practitioner practice or, or certified nurse midwife practice. Every provider has meets the edge of their knowledge and they consult either by phone or in person or send the patient to their colleague and say, I, these are the things I've thought of. Here are my patients. There's my patient's history. Here's my patient's complaints. Here's the findings from the lab tests and my exam. I can't figure this out. I need your help. Every good provider does that. And in our state, as in every other state, we have regulatory boards, occupational licensing boards, they're also called. So in our case, the Board of Nursing for Physicians, the Board of Medicine, et cetera, et cetera. If you're practicing outside your scope of practice, if you're doing things you shouldn't do, if you are a danger to patients because of the the way that you practice, then it's that board's responsibility to discipline you up to and including taking your license away either for a temporary period while there's remediation done or permanently. So we have those bumper rails, you know, we have those in place now. Um, and supervision, position supervision, that almost 50-year-old law, doesn't change that one bit. And passing the SAVE Act won't change it either, because that is really the, that is the, those boards are set up to protect the public, not to protect the provider, to protect the public. 
and they will continue to do that. So one thing that I've heard a lot in my little over a year reporting in North Carolina on healthcare is rural access to care, which you mentioned a little earlier. But I wondered if you could spell out for me how this bill, if signed into law, would serve more rural patients and sort of address the rural coverage gap in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Well, we, we're hopeful that it will. You know, in Arizona, certainly when they passed their full practice authority bill, um, more than a decade ago, maybe more like two, they did a study afterwards and they found that uh, the number of nurse practitioners who went to the rural areas to open practices increased dramatically. So access to care in rural areas really did increase. Uh, what we know is that when you want to go to your or stay in your hometown, you know, maybe you're from Burgaw or you live in Hertford and you want to open a practice there, if you have to pay a physician $20,000 a year, to, in quotes, supervise you, then that has a direct impact on your business plan and whether it is financially viable for you to do that year after year after year. It's not a one-time cost. It becomes part of your overhead. It's an ongoing operating expense. And so we create this financial barrier for nurse, for nurse practitioners and midwives in particular, the two groups of uh, advanced practice registered nurses who are required by state law to be supervised for practice, we create barriers for them. We also know that more nurse practitioners already practice in rural areas than physicians do, particularly nurse practitioners in uh, primary care. Uh, curiously, I was doing a little research, more research about this last week, and I asked a certified nurse midwife colleague of mine, how many states, out, how many counties out of our 100 counties have no obstetrical provider? And the answer is shocking. It's 31. So 31% of our counties have no obstetrical provider in the county. And I think about these mothers, sometimes first-time mothers, who want to have a safe birth. They want to have good prenatal care. They want to have a safe labor and delivery and a healthy newborn. And how far must they travel to get that if they're even able to? Not everybody has access to reliable transportation. Not everybody has all that money for gas. What happens if you go into preterm labor and you're two hours away from your the closest obstetrical provider or hospital? I mean, it's frightening when you think about the huge gaps for care we have in our state. And the SAVE Act simply, you know, it's it's aim is to try to is is to address that problem as much as it can it cannot solve the entire problem but it will definitely not make it worse and and i've heard no convincing argument for why the save act should not be passed that's the majority of the questions i had for you but is there anything else you want readers or listeners or north carolinians to know about this legislation and kind of where it's at in the process. Thanks, Lucille. Um, well, the SAFE Act is a little stalled right now. I don't think it's a permanent condition. But, um, you know, right now what we're trying to do is get the, the bill heard in committee. Um, because we have 102 sponsors and co-sponsors of this bill, so that's 77 in the House, and 25 in the Senate makes up 64% of House members and 50% of senators who are have already signed on to the SAVE Act and said, I want to pass this bill. That's an overwhelmingly positive message. And yet the bill can't get a hearing in committee. 
because the medical lobby doesn't want it to. Thank you so much, Representative Adcock. I really appreciate your time. It is always a pleasure to talk to you, Lucille, and I and I'm always eager to talk about the Save Act and other things our state can do to improve not just access to care, but the quality of care that's given, and of course, the cost of care. For more from our politics team, subscribe to the News and Observer at newsobserver.com/slash/subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Under the Dome and NC Insider, and sign up for our weekly political newsletter, also called Under the Dome, at newsobserver.com/newsletters. Thanks for listening.